The If Then podcast is brought to you by If Then Ventures, a community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. This should go without saying, but let it be said. Absolutely nothing in today's conversation is legal, financial, or any other type of advice. That said, if you are looking for advice, then the If Then community is great at connecting founders and startups with the right attorney for their needs. Alternatively, if you're interested in partnering or joining the If Then community, just send me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to the show. Yes! Welcome to another episode of the If Then podcast. It's with great pleasure I'm welcoming to the show Scale LLP's newest attorney specializing in blockchain and crypto as well as privacy law, uh, former associate general counsel of privacy and security at Coinbase, former attorney at Latham and Watkins where we met, and guy who I can only assume spent Saturday night on Twitter chuckling at throw Rogan jokes about Aaron Rodgers, uh, Shahab Asgar, certified privacy professional. Shahab, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. What an introduction. And man, you know me so well. Uh, <laughs> I, I stayed up far too late on Saturday reading every trashy tweet about Aaron Rodgers and reveling in it. Um, glad to be here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, nothing like a good uh, Twitter pylon in any scenario. That's that's what the, uh, you know, when everyone is joking about something, that's always that's always a fun time. Correct. Shahab, so the If Then podcast, we generally like to talk about things like career intentionality. You are an attorney and we have some thoughts on attorneys taking careers into their own hands. And I think there's something that you have done very adeptly throughout your career. Um, and we also like to talk about product strategy and how legal advice can uh, really make an impact on a product. So I'd like to start with kind of the beginning of your legal career. You graduated from UCLA Law School. You made your way to Latham and Watkins. Can you, can you talk about kind of the beginning of your legal career? Yeah, yeah, and, and and I wish that it was sort of as 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 linear as it might look from the outside, or, or intentional as it might look. But honestly, it, it's all quite circuitous. So you know, uh, when I started at UCLA, UCLA Law, like I, I didn't think I really envisioned what my legal career was supposed to look like. And in many ways, if I'm being perfectly candid, I was a little bit on autopilot and was sort of just doing what seemed to be what the successful lawyers were supposed to do. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, or take this job your one else summer go through OCI, interview with all the big law firms, go, you know, do a summer, go to a big law firm, and then you'll figure things out. I hadn't really, if I'm being frank, didn't even know what practice areas I wanted to, to, to practice. I had a general idea that I wanted to move back to the Bay Area and work at a big firm, but that was frankly about it. And so the way I landed with Latham was, you know, going into the OCI process, you know, I, I had heard that, you know, big law is, is big law and, and, and it's tough and it can be a grind. And so what you want to do if you want to be successful and last is at the very least try to find people that you enjoy working with. Yep. Um, because it's going to be long, long hours, tough projects, high stress environment. And, and so that was actually my primary filter, believe it or not, was working in San Francisco and trying to find like-minded personalities. And even before going into the interview process, you know, I'd heard a little bit about Latham. It's hard not to. Um, you kind of hear the negative side of like, maybe it's a little bit fratty, um, <laughs> you know, but, um, 
at least for the the reputation for the San Francisco office seemed very collegial. Didn't know what path I wanted to take, whether I wanted to be a, you know, a litigator or, or a corporate attorney. Actually, quick detour. I, I actually didn't go straight from law school to Latham. Um, I yes. happened to graduate class of 2009. The, the illustrious, the illustrious class of, of 2009. The, the recession class. Um, and I, like many other folks of that era, uh, you know, I was offered the opportunity to, to sort of take the year off, take a stipend. Um, and start the following year when there was enough work to do for, for us. Can, can I ask you, you know, you mentioned you were offered to take the, the opportunity. I'm curious about that choice and how that was yeah. presented. Was, you know, famously, of course, um, as the recession came in, right, as I entered law school, the, my first um, uh, uh, contact or, or knowledge of Latham was with respect to Lathaming. I think the term was uh, coined by above the law um, of the mass yep. layoffs that that Latham really kind of kicked off the big layoffs throughout the industry. And um, I'm guessing the kind of immediate effect was felt by your class and these deferral offers. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm curious like how that was presented. Um, was it a choice at all um, or, I mean, yeah. Yeah, the good old uh, lat days of above the law. Um, yeah, it, it it was presented as 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 a choice, and and a number of folks from my class went ahead and started right away, and and all went on to have very successful careers. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think it, it it impacted them negatively in any way. If anything, you know, they got an extra year of experience and 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 had a leg up in in, in some ways. So I I did not feel like it was a risk. Um, to to take the stipend, I think at the time I may have convinced myself that it would it, it was a slight risk to actually go ahead and start early if there wasn't any work, and and, and that being interpreted negatively. But I, I don't think that was the case. Like I said, I think the folks who started had plenty to do, um, and have have gone on to have great careers. For me, the decision was more about an opportunity that I had. Quite frankly, I actually spent the second and third years at law school taking a number of international law courses and particularly international criminal law, uh, including a clinic where, you know, we traveled to Bosnia uh, to dig deep into like the international tribunal um, that, that, you know, prosecuted war crimes in the region. And so, and I really enjoyed that experience. And so I thought to myself, I don't know if I can make a career out of this, but I'd love to at least dabble in it and, 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 and dig a little bit deeper while I have the opportunity. And so that kind of stipend year um, was the perfect time to do that. So that's what I ended up doing, actually. I, did, I, I went into The Hague. I ended up working for um, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, one of the newer tribunals there at the time. And it was just an awesome experience. Um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a different type of litigation than, than, than we do, it, or, or even criminal practice than we do in the States. Um, so it was just kind of interesting to watch. Uh, but I learned a ton, made a, made a ton of great friends, and, and ultimately thought it was um, very much the right decision for me. That's really interesting that you bring up kind of being on the path. I, I like to call it the path. The legal field has an interesting way of bringing you in by saying you can do anything with a law degree, you know. In some respects, that actually is true. But once you get in, it's kind of here's the path. Follow it. Do this thing. It's set out for you. This is what everyone does, uh, at least certainly for a certain type of person that, that goes to a certain type of law school. Yeah. You know, you mentioned kind of being on it, but almost immediately that path was flipped on its head for you. And without ever going to work for a firm, you went into this super unique experience in an international court doing international law and being 
being able to take that choice to take a stipend to go do something random and interesting and giving you some perspective. I think that's a really cool, unique experience. It like kind of immediately shakes that, that, that snow globe of the standard legal path. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and to me, that was a little bit of a leap of faith. You know, I, I had kind of autopiloted on the path up to that point, but it really did seem like potentially the last chance to do something kind of weird and wacky before, you know, I really locked into this kind of tried and true proven pathway. Uh, it turned out it wasn't going to be the first time uh, or the last time that I made, you know, circuitous choice. Uh, but at the time I didn't know that. But I, I think one of the takeaways was it was super rewarding to, to, yeah. to kind of to, to, to take that leap. And, and so I think a couple of years down the road, when it was time to do that again, I, I kind of went back to that and was like, okay, you know, it might feel awkward. It might seem risky, but, but man, you learned a ton and you made incredible relationships and like, maybe that'll happen again. Yeah. So speaking of rewarding, <laughs> let's talk about your start at Latham. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I finally got paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that all that's that's certainly its own reward. Yeah, so so kind of coming back to Latham, I still didn't quite know what what type of firm attorney I wanted to be. I think I directionally thought, well, given my prior experience, I should go down the litigation path. Um, and the San Francisco office of 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 Latham and Watkins is very litigation focused, which is not true for for many of the other offices. And you know, they had a big antitrust practice there, and and still do. So very quickly, us kind of you know junior associates were, were looped into these sort of very large cartel investigation, you know, um, global, massive antitrust cases, which was kind of neat. And like, even the term global cartel sounds cool. And so like, I was kind of drawn to, you know, that's how they, that's how they get you. It's a trap. The mystique. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was drawn to the mystique of the cases, but they ended up being a lot of um, kind of nuts and bolts discovery. I mean, it was just a ton of like wading through information to try to figure out like, did these companies actually get up to some you know questionable conversations or not and so you know if i'm being perfectly honest i spent a good chunk of the first year and a half there doing doc review uh was not the most exciting you know thrilling legal work that that you know you can you can be exposed to but i think something that latham did really well and i suspect this is true at other for other firms as well is they really like teach you how to like work hard and i know that sounds like kind of vague it does instill a certain work ethic, I think, in, 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 in young lawyers. And I think Latham, even among the firms, has this very kind of like no stone unturned approach to the way that they, that they work their cases. And so I think I learned a lot of attention to detail, the work of putting in the hours. But, you know, I did quickly learn that I wanted to work on smaller matters, you know, mm -hmm. more discrete things, not these cases that are going to drag on for 10 years, like, you know, things where I could, I could see something kind of start to finish. You know, I was fortunate enough to do a, a project for um, an antitrust partner at the firm uh, related to, to M&A. Um, and, and so this is the merger control practice. And so it's, it's kind of a, uh, an offshoot of, of, of antitrust. Uh, merger control basically in an M&A, and particularly in the United States, if an M&A is above a certain size, it gets, it gets reviewed by the federal government, DOJ or the FTC to determine whether or not the deal presents anti-competitive concerns. And it's the merger controls team to kind of educate the government uh, on why it's not mm -hmm. anti-competitive, right? And these reviews happen like relatively quickly. Um, I mean, they still they, they can still take you know many many months, but like when you're talking about litigation, that's actually not that long of a time, right? So anyway, the cru the crux of the, the 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 job for these cases was okay. 
M&A deal is happening. We, were, we either represent the acquirer or the acquired company. Our jobs as the merger control lawyers was to learn about these companies, learn about the economics of the deal, figure out why it makes competitive sense for these, these companies to do what they do, and then turn around and educate the government. And so that meant as lawyers, you had to kind of dive into the weeds of these companies, become quasi-professionals in their industry, talk to their their BD people, talk to their marketing people, talk to their product people, and understand why these deals made sense. And I loved that part of that job. Yeah. Like sitting down with the business folks and learning about the business was like I, I loved getting that wider scope of yes. you know why why this job matters. Some something you mentioned on on that and you know, being at a law firm and deciding that being on small cases is, is what you like versus some massive cases. And I think you and I certainly both know folks who had long careers at Latham and spent them doing essentially entirely one thing, one case for, for one client, because that's kind of the way the chips fell. And yeah. um, I, I think it's interesting that liking the kind of small team aspect and liking the control, you had these ideas for the type of experiences that you wanted to have while doing legal practice. And that allowed you to gravitate towards a type, a specific type of role, a type of team doing this thing, merger control. Um, You can see how it has some of these concepts common to litigation. And I did a lot of internal investigations and that has a lot of the same features, right? You have to learn everything about a business. You have to interview people. You have to ask them about their industry. You have to deeply understand it before you can make some sort of recommendation in an investigation. That recommendation is internally to the company or to some government body that is investigate them and saying, you know, don't prosecute us. It sounds like merger control is pretty substantially similar. And it gives you that those reps in really understanding deeply what makes a company what matters to it and how to advocate for it with with that respect as opposed to kind of legal arguments that you might in a brief in a more traditional role. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think coming back to like intentionality, I think one thing that I did pick up on litigation in many ways is, is, is a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. And I think my mentality, like a lot of lawyers who end up in, 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 in tech, is we're, 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 we're more interested in building things. Um, yes. and, and, and litigation feels like it in many ways is doing the opposite or, or can do the opposite. And so I think I identified that kind of quickly that I, I didn't quite like that zero sum aspect. I didn't like the roles uh, in the kind of dances that many litigators did as part of the process where, hey, we both know in, in three months we're gonna end up here, but we're both gonna pretend, you know, and, and write a bunch of briefs and, 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 and BS until we ultimately end up where we both know we're going to end up anyway. And, and that's not to, to cast judgment or, or, or belittle the litigation process or, or litigators or, or anything at all. That's, all. that's just kind of, you know. All, all the litigators that listen to this are, are on their way to your house right now. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah, I know. They're ready. <laughs> I'm sorry. But that is one of the reasons why like the, that merger control practice really, really appealed to me, right? You are trying to help these two companies, you know, accomplish a mutual goal. And even the interaction with the government initially is not necessarily adversarial, right? Really, your initial role, if you're doing the job right, is educational, right? You are, you are trying to teach them about the industry and why this deal makes sense. 
they may disagree and their economists may disagree. And, and, and uh, that's, that's when things kind of shift more into the, the kind of full litigation mode um, and, and where you're doing essentially or dealing with essentially depositions of, of, of the various actors in these, in, these, in these mergers. But if you do it right, you, don't, you, you never get there, right? If you're successful yeah. in the education piece, everyone kind of walks away and says, okay, this deal looks great. And we'll move on to the next one. What was kind of fun was, you know, these deals, like I said, you know, really only only um, these investigations or deals like really only run a couple of months apiece. You know, you're doing two or three of these a year and each one of these deals is, is a totally different industry. Mm-hmm. I, I was bounced around from from, you know, semiconductors to office supplies to food delivery apps to rental car services. I think the, the part I found fa- uh, frustrating about that was I never really got to build on that business industry knowledge, right? right? Because I was constantly shifting industry to industry. And, and I kind of, at some point thought to myself, man, wouldn't it be great if I could just stick with one of these things and yeah. like really understand the business, right? And okay, well, you probably belong in-house if that's, that's what yep. you're looking for, if that's your mindset. After you learned everything there is to know about tuna, then it was just taken, <laughs> then it was just taken away from you. And I, I don't think you were exactly. on any of the actual tuna cases, but uh um, I, I, I didn't do tuna. I didn't do okay. tuna. But yeah, I mean, I did like, yeah, like I said, office supplies, food delivery, like all, all kinds of funky stuff like that. So let's, let's, let's talk about like, you found a good practice for you. You, um, you know, you found enough success to stay at, at, at Latham a pretty reasonable period of time, something like four years. And mm-hmm. um, you found something that you enjoyed, but you realized potentially that what you enjoyed about it was more suited to in-house life. Um, I mean, is that an accurate kind of representation? And, and can you talk about the shift, um, the leaving of the nest and heading on to your next stop? It was a little bit frightening because I, I really didn't know how to make that transition. Uh, and like, how do I get that in-house gig? Oh, gosh, I've, I've been kind of a, a litigator for a long time. And, and it's, it, at the time, this is, you know, kind of mid to late 2014. It's kind of tough for litigators to get in-house gigs. Um, yeah. I think that's changed a little bit now. But at the time, it was it was tough. And so what I did was I asked for leave of absence from the firm and, and I took a few months off and I spent that time uh, kind of digging into things that I thought in-house counsel needed to know, in, particularly in tech. What, what practice areas do I think I need to focus on uh, to get a good in-house gig? And so as I started to look around at the needs of, or what I thought the needs were of, of, of some of these, the, these, these tech companies, you know, two, two practice areas kind of, kind of popped off. Um, Privacy and payments. Uh, you know, fintech was sort of booming already, um, and the footsteps of privacy were already starting to be heard, um, even here in the U.S. Uh, I mean, G- GDPR was kind of in the works already, even at that time. But the FTC was, for all for all the the gripes that I think the United States gets with respect to privacy and privacy enforcement, the FTC has actually been fairly active in that space for a long time, uh, and they had already started to set their sights on on, on tech companies uh, and big mm-hmm. data. Right. And so privacy and payments were already kind of practice areas that were in my head. And I thought, okay, I should learn some kind of basic stuff like, okay, licensing and, and kind of IP and, and, and kind of tech trans, things that I thought uh, a good in-house lawyer at a tech company would need to know. When you say learn, what, what, what were you doing? Yeah. So there, there were a couple of books that I got. I might even still have some somewhere. Um, there are, you know, PLI courses, like mm. that, that kind of stuff, like finding, you know, CLE type courses that were, that were kind of up to date uh, and, right. and, 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 and attending seminars and things like that. 
so it was really just like me sitting in coffee shops, like for, for five, six, seven, eight hours at a time, you know, just like either watching videos or reading books on, on some of the stuff and taking tons of notes. I don't know how fruitful that was, but I think at the very least it helped me in interviews. Yeah, I was definitely, I was going <laughs> to say, sure. do you think any of that helped? Because uh, yeah. I mean, like people, I think, I think people are really looking for like resume content and you can't really put that on a resume if I'm being yeah. frank. But there were in, in interviews, uh, substantive conversations about some of these things would come up and I could talk about them quasi intelligently because of yes. these courses that I took and because of these things that I read. So in that sense, it was helpful. I mean, at the very least, it shows enough of an interest and an intentionality to go do something that you're driven enough to have uh, actually taken a leave of absence and yeah. started doing, you know, CLE type courses. I have my CLE due in like seven days and I haven't even yeah. done all my CLE courses. So no, it's, I, I can see how it would be beneficial from that standpoint. Yeah. And, and I think even more practically, like you sort of learn how to speak that language a little bit because in-house lawyering, it, it is a whole different language. Yep. And, and, and so at least being able to, to converse quasi intelligently um, in, in that sense, that was helpful in, in, in interviews and, and talking to product people uh, and things like that. So, but you, you, to like fast forward a bit, you found yourself in crypto in, yeah. in 2015. And, you know, like that, uh, certainly my Twitter feed is like 75% crypto talk uh, in 2022, but in 2015, my Twitter feed was 75% like crying Jordan memes. So like, how did you get to, uh, how, how did you, how did you land at crypto at, at that early? Yeah. So, so going back to the, the kind of focus on, on privacy and payments, um, I started to have a number of conversations with with friends and acquaintances that were in fintech, you know, people who are working at places like PayPal, Square, Stripe. And one of those friends said, okay, you care about privacy and payments. Well, what do you know about Bitcoin? Because that's basically like the perfect intersection of those two things. And I said, oh, that thing that like people used to buy drugs? Like that, that thing? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, but he kind of gave me like a, a very quick crash course and said, hey, like, I don't know if you've heard of this company Coinbase. My firm did some work for them when I was at the firm. You should, you should read up on this stuff and you should read up on them and, and, and see if they've got an opening. And then a couple of things just fortuitously worked out in my favor. They did have an opening. Uh, I happened to have a connection to their, their head recruiter through a family member of mine. Was able to get in touch with him. And um, he was actually really great in terms of setting the foundation for like my crypto education. Like mm. he basically was like, you want to interview here? Like I, I, look, I see your baseline credentials are, are good. Uh, but if you don't know anything about crypto, you have to read like this packet of resources that I'm going to send to you. And I did. And very quickly was pulled in and like down, down the rabbit hole. And I think a lot of other people who've gotten into crypto, even now, like they, they know that feeling. Right. Yep. Like somebody opens a door uh, and you're like, well, I have never thought about things this way. I thought things always had to be this other way. Um, how interesting. Yes. Uh, and I think back then, like one, one of the seminal um, pieces, was, I think Mark Andreessen had, had wrote an article in the New York Times like it was an op-ed. Uh, it just was just, just really highlighted the early potential for, for, for what this technology can do. I, I was fascinated. I, did, I just still didn't quite understand like how anything, any of it worked, but I was fascinated by the potential and what it could do. Um, things like remittance payments and micropayments and, and kind of like the things, things, things that attracted all of us to the, the space in the early days, I'd say. So anyway, I, I kind of get into the interview process. Um, Coinbase at the time was just kind of in the early stages of figuring out how it's supposed to be regulated. Mm -hmm. 
and you know i think very quickly realized okay we have to pursue this kind of money transmission license strategy um this is like basically like state by state licenses um companies that that like custody funds on behalf of others have to obtain yep and from my experience at latham and merger control i do know how to talk to regulators you know <laughs> i don't know if i know i don't know if i know how to talk to them about like financial regulation but i've talked to you know i talked to regulators in the past i know how to speak their language that was like my pitch and mm -hmm. thankfully they bought it and uh in february 2015 um i i i started at coinbase my path at Coinbase was also circuitous in its own rights. I came in as a generalist, right? Um, yes, I was helping on the, the, the regulatory licensure type stuff. Um, but a company that small, when I started, was about 40 or 50 people. It's got needs in, in every imaginable kind of, you know, legal arena, you know, IP, employment, basic, you know, vendor contracts, third-party risk management, you know, real estate, like you name it, right? Yep. So I joined a, a very small legal team. I was the third lawyer there, which actually for the, the size of the company at the time was, was a pretty good distribution. Like I said, we're about 40, 50 folks when I started and we we're all generalists. And it was basically next person up for every assignment. Who's got time, you know, take this thing on. So that allowed me to get really familiar with the product mindset and like what our engineers prioritize, what, what problems they're trying to solve and what my role is in, in, in kind of helping to solve them. And there's just so much you learn by osmosis in a small company that's moving as fast as that company was at the time. So that growth period was like invaluable to me. Part of it was like hoisted upon me and part of it was, you know, being a little bit proactive and like reaching out to people and like getting coffees and like learning about what they do so I can do, you know, my job a little bit better. What did you find, especially in, in kind of those early days, you're getting assignments, you're taking things on, you're, you're, you're doing what's needed. What did you immediately find was different than your work at Latham at, at the firm? And did it kind of fill those goals that you felt that you were missing um, from your time at Latham? Yes. So uh, I think on the last point first, I think that what attracted me to smaller cases of the firm and then it attracted me to working in-house is I wanted to be able to see the fruits of my labor, you know, yeah. Um, and that whole idea of being able to see projects from start to finish and boy, I got what I wish for at Coinbase. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, like everything is, is, is immediately relevant. Right. And you know, these things are short-term projects. Like, you know, this thing needs to be done in three days or we cannot do X, right. This is, this is the blocker and you need to fix it. And so that was hyper rewarding. This is true, maybe my entire tenure at Coinbase because of how fast things would move there. I was constantly learning, like learning something new every single day that uh, accomplished, you know, one of the other goals that, that, that I was trying to accomplish, uh, where at Latham, maybe I felt a little bit like I was doing the same thing over and over again. That was not the case at Coinbase. Like I was doing something different every day, every week. Do you think the nature of that was part of the nature of being in-house at a tech company, in-house at a startup? in-house at a cryptocurrency startup in 2015? Probably all of the above. <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly a function of being at a smaller startup. Because, you know, having, having stayed at that company for, for six years and, and, and watching it grow to a, a many thousand person, you know, global sort of behemoth, 
the, the, the experience uh, as a member of the legal team was very different in year six and a half than it was in, in, in year one, right? There's a lot more structure, stratification, things do slow down a little bit kind of out of necessity. You know, while things are still intense and people learn very quickly, it wasn't quite the trial by fire experience and the short term, like immediate turnaround um, that, that we had in those first couple of years. Yeah. I think, the, I think the other thing that was very different from law firm life is risk tolerance and like the, 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 the necessity of the quality of the work. I, you know, you very quickly, I, I think law firms are very good at teaching you how to issue spot. Right. And, and so you, you identify what the problems are like very, very quickly. And that, and that was, a, that's, a, that's an extremely, extremely useful skill. But when you're in house, like that is half the battle. Right. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to hear all the problems. People want to hear how you solve those problems. Very quickly. I learned that like issue spotting is it's a, it's a really great way to lose friends. If you don't do the next step, which is propose solutions <laughs> and clear, yes. c- concise, and manageable uh, ways in, 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 in terms that product folks and management and non-lawyers understand. Like, like basically your guidance needs to be very actionable, clear and actionable. Yeah. Um, so I really quickly had to, had to change the way I communicate. And then I had to unlearn a little bit of that leave no stone unturned mentality from Latham. You at a place that is moving as fast as, as Coinbase is where, particularly in, in the industry that we were in, where the rules are very, very unclear and quite frankly, unwritten, especially at that time, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You do your work, you do your research to answer whatever the question is, you give a best reasonable guess, and you kind of have to be comfortable with that. You kind of have to be comfortable with being 80% confident in, in, in your answer and not really having a safety net. That's terrifying, terrifying, like lots of night sweats because of that. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> but it, that's how you get stuff done. And yes. I'm really you're glad not, I, I, I learned that. You're not waiting for a track changes document back from someone above you who is, is, is looking to make sure that your periods are in the right place, that you don't use a passive voice, that you, you yeah. know, are, <laughs> that everything is, you know, prim and proper. Um, and that yeah. does matter in that practice. But for me, I mean, certainly it, it was relieving to have the focus be on more practical things. And I mean, I'm, I'm curious how you adjusted to working with outside counsel who do still have that mindset and how you're able to make use of advice or when you feel that that felt that the time was right to get advice from outside counsel, especially in this area of the law at the time that is still, you know, you he- I hear from you, Coinbase is just figuring out about money transmitter laws and things like that. And that's such a staple of fintech today, right? You, yep. wouldn't, you wouldn't need any lawyers at a fintech company to tell you that. The, the, just the business people would know that already. That's how kind of well stamped that is. But um, it, it seems like, you know, we're, we're talking quite a long time ago in the, in the world of crypto. What did you use outside counsel for? How did you seek their advice and how did you, and how have you over time learned to make the most use out of outside counsel? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so in, in, in the early days, I think we primarily relied on outside counsel for engagement, regulatory engagement. Mm. 
these these firms have talked to all these, you know, the the office of you know financial services in this particular state, right? They they know these people. We do not. From the outside looking in, the regulators look at us like we're a bunch of crazy kids with our magic internet money. The law firms would give us legitimacy. So so that's what the initial engagement looked like in in, in many ways. I think the other way I recall using outside counsel in the early days was looking at expansion jurisdictions. You know, Coinbase is a growing business. We're looking not just to get these licenses in these U.S. states, but launching many of our products abroad and, you know, working very closely with our product folks to prioritize, you know, where we wanted to expand to. And then there's outreach to local counsel in a lot of those places to learn more about, okay, what are, what are the you know, financial regulations, what are the tax laws that impact, you know, Bitcoin, you know, th- those types of things. Uh, you know, how, how, how do we get a bank account in this country? You know, that, that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of like, we, I think we were pretty good about known unknowns in that respect, right? And so you'd rely on outside counsel for those types of things where trying to do the legwork ourselves would have taken too much time. It would have been inefficient. Yeah. But something I learned early on, which I continue to refine over time was, you know, dealing with, in dealing with outside counsel and requesting their assistance, you must be very precise. And yes. what I, what, what I got very good at was, you know, in the initial email to outside counsel, when, when I, when I'm asked them to take on a task is making it clear to them what I already know. Right? Yes. <laughs> I, I have done this research. In fact, I, I many, I, a lot of times I would, I would attach like a two, three page memo, right? Like, here's the work that we've already done on this topic. We need you to answer this discrete question that we're unclear on. Right. Uh, and we've already gone down these paths, right? And we already think the answer is this, right? But we need you to come up with support that to confirm that the answer is this, right? So you're keeping them focused uh, because outside counsel, there are natural issue spotters. They will they will start to find other problems and things and they'll say, hey, well, maybe we should dig it, look at this too. And maybe we should look at this because it's kind of related and, and you kind of have to rein that in a little bit as, as Absolutely. inside counsel, right? Um, you've drilled, um, you've, you've, you've touched on what I would say is part of the core thesis of if then, which is mm-hmm. that outside counsel, for the most part, can't do strategy for you. Um, they can't do legal and regulatory strategy um, for you. Their, their brains are simply not wired that way. And that's simply not mm-hmm. what they're for. And that um, they're most effectively utilized when you can point them to something specific and yeah. you know say that I want the answer to this question. And what you mentioned about telling them what you already know is so, so key. Um, Cause I've definitely had experiences where I, I'll say something along the lines of, I have this question, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. I wanna know if I can do this thing. I don't want a memo on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I understand the background. I already read all the regs, already did all of yeah. these things. And then it's like, okay, yeah, totally. And then what do I get? Uh, I get a memo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. I don't, I didn't, uh, I didn't oh. want a memo. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I met many times my instructions say, please, <laughs> please, please provide your guidance in an, in a, in a bullet pointed email, you know, like, like you, you really kind of, you have to be very, again, coming back to intentionality, right? Yes. Very, very intentional about what you're asking for. And again, not, 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 not a knock, like that it's, it's again, it's outside counsel's job in, 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 in almost any scenario to, to identify all of these risks for you. And if you're not yes. clear about which ones you care about and which ones you don't, they're going to find them all. Right. Yes. Um, 
So, so that's why it, you know, like it, it's not like a, a money drain thing, right? It is, it is that that is how they're wired to think. Oh, and that is, for that sure. Is how, they're, how they're supposed to do their jobs, and you, and you just have to help them. Like you just have to help them narrow the focus. Yeah, people people think lawyers like drain the clock or something, and I can promise you, they definitely don't do that. They have a lot of shit to <laughs> <Yeah>. do. Um, <laughs> they're generally trying to just get as many things done as possible. Yeah, um, they do sometimes care too much about form over function, and that's yes. when we talk about like, hey, yes. I don't want the, the the memo, I don't want the PowerPoint, I don't want any of that. Here's what I want. I want you to answer these two questions. Literally respond to this email and put your answer like in blue ink <laughs> and within the email that I just wrote. Right? Like that's all I want. <laughs> Love it. Okay, so you you and I have certainly spent a lot of time working with and dealing with lawyers, but one of the largest shifts into going in house is, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, working with product folks, working with engineers. And one of the nicest things, though, that you've also mentioned is that what that enables is that your thoughts, your ideas, your advice manifests it in, it can manifest itself in something tangible, real, that you can use experience, that your friends can use experience that makes money, um, helps the company grow um, and like goes live in a product. How, like, what, what are some of the things that you were able to do as either a generalist, as a privacy counsel, I mean, at a high level, like what's the type of work that you're able to do that manifests itself into a product um, at Coinbase? Yeah, um, really, really great question. And I think kind of a, a, a critical thing to think about as if, if, if folks are looking to go in-house. Um, I think the mentality that I had and, and what I'd always tried to do, I think particularly as I moved on into more security and privacy focused role, but really generally was when working with, with you know, my colleagues in, on the product side, trying to demonstrate to them that like our interests are aligned um, and that the guidance that we as lawyers can provide to you um, is a benefit to your customers. We are helping to give, helping you create products that our customers want. And, and I think particularly, you know, in, in cryptocurrency where security is everything. Security is like not just like a box checking thing to make sure the company is safe. Like security is actually our like distinguishing competitive advantage, right? So we should make that front and center. And, and, and sort of the way you earn that trust with the product people and the way they believe you when you say something like, hey, we're on the same side is you have to learn the shit out of the products. You have yes. to like you have to learn their jobs inside and out. And that's hard to do, but like it is necessary work. Like that is the crux of earning their trust. I can't tell you how many times like a, a conversation with a new product person kind of started at hostel. Um, but then I started to tell them about how I use the product and what I love about it so much and how I am also frustrated by this customer experience that, that they're trying to fix. And they're like, oh, great. You're a customer. You understand what I'm trying to do. Yeah, you might not agree with how I'm doing it. And that's why you're here giving me advice. But like you understand the pain point that I'm trying to solve. And so we are actually having this conversation from the same side, right? It's not yeah. adversarial. We're working together to solve a mutual problem that we both we both appreciate as a problem. Um, that that like that is yeah. huge. It is it it is the fastest way to earn trust. Um, there's a real ability, so, there's a real ability to educate yourself by using your company's product by using your competitor, the, the, the competitors, um, by studying yep. the market and the industry. And it's not something that's present in a law firm. I don't know how you can like cosplay as a client, um, or why you would like in, in, in a law firm, but you really can 
it, the more you understand, not just about the product, the more you understand about the company's business model, about how the company makes money, about how, uh, about the strengths and weaknesses the company has in the market, the better you're going to be able to give actionable legal advice and the more tangible you're going to see the results of what you do, of, of the advice that you give and how it reflects on the company because you understand those outputs. And, and actually, like, I, I think that that's good advice for outside counsel as well, because I will say, you know, we've had some very good outside counsel um, and many of them have distinguished themselves by like learning Coinbase products inside and out, right? Like yeah. they, are, they are also customers and they can, they can speak to that customer experience the same way that we as the in-house lawyers try to do to our, our product folks. Um, and similarly, it is, it is a great way to, you know, earn trust with me as outside counsel if you do that. You know, how, how was my work able to be represented in like the product? Um, you know, so leading the privacy function, the same way we were able to distinguish kind of security as a feature and a competitive differentiator, it was my pitch to the product folks that we do the same thing with privacy. You know, I think cryptocurrency, you know, for those who are familiar with the industry, even if you're not like this idea of anonymity or pseudonymity. Um, being able to engage in transactions, like without having to reveal all of your personal information, like that's part of like the central core ethos of, 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 of the space. Um, and, you know, my pitch was for to lean into that, right? Like, let us demonstrate to our customers that of the other cryptocurrency companies, of all the cryptocurrency companies out there, like we are the ones that are privacy focused, right? Like we we uh, disclose all the, all, all the information to you about like what information we collect and, and how it's used. We give you um, the ability in your settings to, to change how things are tracked, um, to, to modify your information, you know, all this other stuff. Um, a lot of which, you know, it, it also like checks compliance boxes, but it was more than that, right? It's like, it's going beyond just bare bones compliance, demonstrating that we go a little bit above and beyond. And that, that, that kind of bore fruit, right? Like our, our, we've got these really great like settings to comply with GDPR that I think are way better than like your average websites. Like we, we built ours from scratch ourselves. We didn't just buy some off the shelf tool that's like doesn't operate well and work with the rest of our infrastructure, right? It looks like a Coinbase product. It feels like a Coinbase product because it is a Coinbase product, right? And that's awesome. Like that was great to see. And, and it's something that I remain, you know, very, very proud of. I can, I can give you a, uh... As a testament to that, as right before this, right before this call, I went on Coinbase.com and I went into my account and uh, decided to see how difficult it would be to request my data, um, since I knew I was talking to a Coinbase privacy guy. And uh, <laughs> you know, maybe it's cheating a little bit because I have done CCPA compliance and I know how to find these things. Um, but I, I've, I was able to find it, find it pretty easily. A couple of clicks through requesting my data. It hasn't come in yet, but it is, you know. Sunday night, and I don't know what kind of manual intervention checks you guys uh, or Coinbase has behind the scenes, but um, yeah, we do. We we do have a, a few uh, because, as, as any privacy <laughs> professional will tell you, the biggest risk is sending someone's data to the wrong person. Yes. Right? So, uh, so the authentication process does does does, does, does take a second, but um, I hope you get it in about a week or so. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's like ninety days, so I I, I I won't get too impatient about not having it in ninety minutes. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was a good experience. So I will have to hand that. I will definitely have to hand that to you. Um, you you mentioned something that I think is necessary that I key on with you, which is the intersection of privacy and crypto or and blockchain. And 
the I, I find it to be a very interesting tension. Um, you have, if you ask some people, they'll tell you one of the biggest things about crypto is that people can do things um, anonymously, nefarious things, um, support terrorism by drugs, conduct ransomware attacks. And crypto certainly has this aspect of anonymity to it. I can go create a wallet on MetaMask um, with no KYC, and I can do things with that wallet and it won't be associated with me, um, at least in some extremely conventional ways. On the other hand, blockchains are, for the most part, public and they can be reviewed and, and the data is immutable, as they say, and there are ways, that it, 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 the availability of the data makes things far, far more transparent than almost anything else that exists. Um, and you know we've kind of seen that manifest itself where hackers have done X, Y, or Z, and ultimately they get caught um, despite taking precautions. Um, so, I mean, how, how do you see, like, what are your kind of thoughts on interesting points of how blockchain affects the world of privacy that we live in? Yeah. Uh, given all these, all these kind of competing ideas. Yeah, you kind of, you, you, you nailed that, that tension, right? Um, and, and I think purely from a privacy perspective, there, there's a kind of more specific tension. You know, a lot of these new privacy regulations have this idea or this concept of the right to be forgotten, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that I should be allowed to have certain data about me that is out in the public or on the internet, like deleted, like my Google search results, get rid of those, right? But like you said, blockchains, they're immutable, they're transparent. Once data is on the blockchain, you cannot erase it. There is no central authority you can go to to say, delete the data. Uh, you know, it's, that's not how it works. It's, you know, it's on every node. And so there is an inherent inability, for example, for the Bitcoin blockchain to comply with the right to be forgotten. And that's, that's frustrating. You can append anything on, a, on a, a Bitcoin transaction, right? Any, any message, images, things like that, right? Um, and, that, and once it's there, it's, it's there forever. There's an inherent incompatibility there. I think the point you made about um, the transparency and particularly as you see this expansion in blockchain analytics, you know, pattern or being able to observe patterns and, and kind of being able to identify, oh, who's, whose behavior this is through, the, through those analytics tools actually makes blockchains uh, a poor privacy tool, particularly when you're engaged in improper conduct. But I think, the kind of promise of at least pseudonymity is uh, remains a valid one. And, and I think like where, where blockchains add privacy value is at least certain information does not have to be exposed by default. Yes, if, if, we're, if, if, a, if, a, if an agency is investigating criminal activity and they do some digging and some investigation, maybe they can pierce the veil and figure out like who these bad actors are because they relied on, on blockchain technology. But it doesn't make sense that a, a, for a, a normal transaction, for any normal transaction, you have to share really like all of your like sensitive information with, with the counterparty or, or with the intermediary to this transaction. I think what blockchains are kind of showing is it's possible to do that without, you know, without that intermediary that requires that information. Um, and so your information isn't floating out there in all these different institutions uh, where it can get hacked, it can get leaked, it can get misused, it can get breached, all that other stuff. 
so that's that's kind of one way I try to reconcile that 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 tension. Um, it's just sort of like not not having things be public uh, or or having your personal information out there by default. I think another thing you're seeing coming to fruition, particularly with the advent of of DAOs, is like this this new collaboration with without having to know who you're working with. You, this kind of decentralized identity concept, like you you can build your identity based on your your like activity. Mm-hmm. I don't really know the word for it, like like your social identity, but without actually revealing like physically like who you are, what your name is, and all that kind of stuff. I think that's really interesting. It, it's like a whole different trust model, and I and I know like this is something that you've you've looked into. I think it's, it's maybe even as part of your, your core job now. But there are different ways to risk assess um, mm-hmm. that don't require someone's name and address and whatever, right? And you you can build a reputation through other less PII invasive methods. Um, and I think that's neat. And I think, I think, I think we're finally exploring that a little bit. Um, and, and so that, that is one version of like the pro privacy blockchain world potentially developing where you can have collaboration, build trust models, lend to people, you know, literally lend money to people without knowing who they are, because you've got these other avenues to, to, to kind of risk model them and, and, and assess how trustworthy they are. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think like with many things that are related to the blockchain and crypto space, this is something that continues to evolve. I think the decentralized identity concept and, you know, I I think probably diving into the intricacies of zero knowledge and zero knowledge proofs is potentially beyond the scope of this podcast, but um, (laughs) we can, we can uh, kind of key in on things in the works and how they reflect on our privacy, our security at the same time, how we think about privacy and the fact that we think about privacy at all is something that I would say is relatively new, something that has come to the forefront, I would say in large part, thanks to uh, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, um, but kind of just in general, uh, thanks to how the different ways that we've seen large platforms monetizing data on the internet and web too. Um, so before you know, we are able to wrap up, I need to make sure to ask you, like, what's the deal with cookie banners? And like, what should what should what should what should I be doing with them? Because that really my goal is to get them off my screen as fast as possible. But you know, how, how should I be thinking about them? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, cookie banners. Um, it does feel like a, a quite literally a box checking interv- uh, exercise, not just for the consumer, but also for the people who build them, right? Yes. I mean, I, I, I personally, I engage with them. I, I, I deselect like performance and functionality and all the other cookies. Um, yeah, look, I, I, think, I think we're kind of at a crossroads here with um, how we look at analytics tools and things like Google Analytics and, and Facebook tracking and what constitutes PII. Um, I think it's it's kind of an evolving conversation, you know. Um, is your IP address PII? Is is a uh, is your device identifier PII? And, you know what what can uh, an entity do with that information? You know, can they target you in what ways? You know, like there's, I, I think I think we're still working through a lot of these questions. I think just last maybe a couple of weeks ago, one of the European Data Protection Authorities uh, issued a fine um, to a company for using Google Analytics and sending their users data to the United States as part of that service, you know, where they argued like there, there's no actual PII in that. Like that's not, you know, that's not personal information where we're sending them. Those signals are not enough. 
but the authority kind of came to the conclusion that yes, it was. And, and because that's PII and because you see it got sent to the US, the US government can access it because the US has really um, kind of wild surveillance laws, right? Like FISA laws and things like that. Right. In practice, like that would never happen. You know, like the, there's no intelligence agency is going to come in and like hit Google up for like the analytics stuff for their, their, their case. But, but it's like, we, we just don't understand like where the lines are drawn now in terms of, of, of what is what is PII and what isn't. And, and that's why these cookie banners are like, I've become a thing because like, you know, cookie tracking, even if, you know, we traditionally do not feel like those the, those cookies or, or whatever is, is, is being, you know, tracking activity constitute PII or, or you know, can be manipulated in, in that kind of way, some regulators might, right? And so th- that's why those exist. From from a very simplistic perspective, what's what's happening when one of those appears and when I interact with it? Can you, for the user who just has just kind of ignored what these things really mean, despite them being like ever present in their daily life, can you give us a quick rundown on what those are and, and how they affect the individual user? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are typically like four categories of, of, of cookies. Um, there's kind of strictly necessary um, cookies. And, and these are things that basically are necessary for a given website to, to operate. Um, maybe it's like something that like, you know, make sure that um, you are who you are when you log into a website, right? It's like, it's like a cookie for your credentials and you put in your name and your password. And that thing tells, you know, the service that, oh, okay, this is this person who is logged in here, right? It's for like fraud prevention, it's for security, whatever, right? Every, every service you interact with is going to have some of those and you cannot opt out of those, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have um, functionality cookies. You know, maybe uh, you went to a website and you, um, and, it, and, and, and by default it's in English, but you're a French speaker and you say, you know what, I, I, uh, I want this to be in French, right? Well, how do they remember that the next time you come back to the website? It's because they drop a cookie, right? And it's like, okay, when this, when this IP comes back or you know, this user comes back from this browser, this device or whatever, we need to put the website in French. So, so, so we, are, we are accommodating what, what they've asked us to do. Uh, so that, that's functionality, um, and there are a bunch of other ones that might fall in that category. There's performance, right? And these are, you know, may, maybe a, a website is inter- it wants to kind of track, you know, how their how their website's working, you know, and making sure that when users take actions, things happen the way they're supposed to. They want to track how long it takes for certain things to happen, right? On, on the website, just making sure things are working well. You know, they they drop certain cookies uh, on you in order to track that, and those are performance cookies. And then the last is, is marketing, right? And this is like where, this is, this is, I think, what we're more familiar with, right? It's, oh, okay, Google is, is, is trying to track everything I'm clicking on. And then they take that information and, you know, a couple of different ways you can market either, either that company, you know, if I'm on, if I'm on Coinbase, for example, I get that information back to Coinbase, tell Coinbase, hey, this user clicked on all these things. They must be interested in this related product or arguably more nefariously, right? They take that information they sell it to other advertisers because they can connect you to your behavior elsewhere and say, okay, this user liked this stuff on Coinbase, you know, that might mean they like this other stuff, you know, that you offer and you, you can serve those ads to them on a different platform or something like that. So those are roughly the categories, right? The marketing cookies, you cannot be opted into those by default uh, under GDPR, like for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, have, you have to say affirmatively, yes, you can track me that way. Um, otherwise, by default, you're not. The rules in different jurisdictions are a little bit different. You know, some people might argue that that's also true in California, um, but the language isn't quite as clear there, right? But at the very least, in California, you have to give users the ability to opt out. 
right? Right. And, and that's why you see things like that. Yes, absolutely. And opting out and staying opted out is a continuous battle that one must fight as you visit websites not to be inundated with, uh, I, I'm always, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always curious at the things that really grab on most, um, the most aggressive kind of recommendation engines. Like if you search for an engagement ring, boy, you will, you will get the <laughs> engagement ring army. Or if you search for like a mortgage, you will see nothing but ads for buying houses. And as you go on, 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 and on any website and those things are, are, are particularly, um, aggressive. And yeah. then, you know, of course, as a conspiracy theorist, um, I may, if when <laughs> one of these questions is like, what conspiracy theory do you definitely believe is true? Mine is definitely that Facebook and Google are listening to you because it'll be like, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I talked, I talked about this. I talked about going to Jersey and then all of a sudden all I saw were ads for Jersey. And, you know, a rational person might say, yeah, but you probably saw something or clicked something or typed something that that led you to talk about that or was parcel, part and parcel to that conversation. But no, no, I'm going with the, uh, with the conspiracy. Um, so there's, uh, I, 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 the, the, the name is escaping me right now, but there is a um, professor at Stanford who kind of uh, like is very senior in their, their kind of security and, 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 and privacy uh, department. And she recently posted a thread on this topic and, and clarified that the consensus belief is no, those devices are not listening to you. <laughs> but the truth is probably even less comfortable. And it is that they are tracking so much of your online behavior in so many different ways across platforms, right? Yes. That they can more or less guess what you're thinking. Do you know yes. what I mean? Like that, that, that is even in some ways even more nefarious and, and, and frightening. So the actual devices are not listening to you, but it really doesn't make a difference. They still know everything about you. <laughs> or, or the other explanation which might be the simplest. And it's simply, if you've heard of Occam's razor, this is Nolan's razor and it's just simply inception. Then that's, uh, oh, wow. that's it. You know, that there you is, go. Uh, that is possible. No, I mean, so I, I think the one that, that, that I think people kind of absorb and go, oh yeah, that makes sense is, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I didn't search for that thing. Um, but I am very closely connected in all of like my interactions with my wife or my cousin or my brother and my sister. And they search for that thing and they look for that thing. Because maybe you had a conversation on the phone with, you know, your brother right. or your sister about a given topic and they searched for it. And then that thing ended up in your search results. And that is why, because the networks know that you guys are related and your, your relative search for it. Now it shows up in your results. Terrifying. Um, yeah. Then this is why it uh, is worth it to take those few extra minutes to uncheck those boxes when you see <laughs> that, when you see that cookie banner. Um, okay. Let's get to the, uh, quick parts before we wrap up here. I, I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. And then, well, before we get to these quickly, let me ask you about your new job. You are the latest attorney at Scale LLP. What is Scale LLP and what will you be doing there? Yeah. So Scale LLP is um, essentially a, a sort of virtual, uh, I guess you can call it a decentralized law firm. There's no offices, no office space. In many ways, all the attorneys kind of operate entrepreneurially, but they also have this built-in network of fellow attorneys to rely on. If, you know, they have questions, there is some shared administrative resources, you know, there are, there are paralegals, there's their staff, there's mailing services, a lot of things you'd be familiar with at a law firm. Really what it is intended to do is allow freedom and flexibility for high quality lawyers that you wouldn't get at a law firm. You 
get a, a larger cut of clients you bring in and, and a cut of your billables. Um, there's no minimum billable requirement. You, you know, mainly are managing your own clients and there's no real oversight to how you do that. You kind of operate your own, your own practice. I think it's really great for, you know, attorneys that, you know, like myself uh, have growing families, can't quite work that 2000 hour a year grind or even a full-time grind for that matter, right? I think it's great in this sort of remote first world where it doesn't matter if you cannot have FaceTime. What really matters is the quality of the work. I think it's been really great for a lot of senior firm lawyers who kind of look at the partnership lifestyle and think, you know, I respect those folks, but that's not for me. You know, it's a little bit too intense for me. You kind of get to come to a place like, like scale and you have kind of similar economics to what you would get as a partner elsewhere in terms of what you can get from a client that you bring in without, without the stress of that, that kind of lifestyle. Uh, and you can choose to work with one client. You can choose to work with 10. Like it's, it's, it's kind of in your hands. Now that I'm on the inside, the other thing that I'm really beginning to appreciate is that community. You know, it's, it's a very active Slack people asking, you know, questions. Hey, you know, I haven't looked at this in a while. Like, can anyone kind of, uh, you know, hop on the phone and, and explain this to me? You know, referrals channels kind of uh, are, are, are great. And, and so like, in addition to this kind of new law firm, there is this kind of a different approach, approach and kind of more of a modern approach to, to legal networking, right? You know, forget about like uh, just email distros. Like what if, what if, you know, lawyers hopped on, got, got familiar with Slack and Discord and like learned how to network like everybody else does and move information at the speed that, you know, our clients do. Uh, that's what kind of neat to see too. And, 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 and I think we're anticipating doing more in that, in that realm as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm very early on, but I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed it so far. It allows me to do, you know, what I wanted to do, which is, you know, after leaving Coinbase, uh, which you know, I, I really enjoyed my tenure there, but I wanted to go back to advising smaller crypto startups rather than start my own firm where I have to deal with my practice insurance and all the licensing and registration that comes with, 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 with running your own office. Have somebody else take care of that, you know, and I can focus on giving the guidance. I mean, I can work as much or as little as I want to. Yeah, you put that so well and it it aligns so well with what I would say the ethos of the if-then community is, uh, in particular, the getting together, sharing knowledge on Slack and making sure that we got that spun up was, I would say, a direct consequence of seeing how people like your clients shared information, networked with each other, even during the pandemic. And as I got in closer with the fintech community and the tech community and saw how freely people shared resources and various slacks with total strangers, really remarked on how little lawyers did that. And I think it's great that Scale is putting a, a, a business model behind that. And it really seems like for your clients, what they're able to get is high quality attorneys with deep knowledge that can really help them. And, and they're not prevented from helping them just because they don't want to be a part of the standard version of the law firm machine, which is a very specific thing, which requires a very specific path. And that does not mm -hmm. mean that that path is the only or the best way to be able to give legal advice. And by enabling you to still share resources and community and costs and administration with a group of other high quality attorneys, you're able to accrue some of the benefit of that while taking a different approach and simply just innovating. And, and the legal field does more and more of that increasingly, but not nearly enough. Yeah, I think that's all right. All right. Well, let's go to 
a couple of our segments. First segment, Take Town, I, your hottest take on crypto, on privacy, um, on, on, on anything you wish to uh, deliver. Oh, man. I don't know if this is even that hot of a take anymore, but like, I basically hate all of the avatar NFT projects. Like, I think they're just like <laughs> the dumbest thing. And it frustrates me to no end that, that they, they are like the center of the conversation to a lot of people who are non-native to crypto. It's really unfortunate. I think, I think there's a lot of promise in NFTs like outside of that like very strange secret society use case. Like I, I, I don't understand it, quite frankly. And I think the art itself is like usually really bad. With a few exceptions, or a couple that, that I think are actually kind of neat, but I'm excited for the stage when we move past this stuff and start to really dig into like what NFTs can actually do and, and, and the things that they can accomplish, like not just for artists, but for like everyday people. That's the take. I love it. I think, I think it's a, it's a hot take, but it's, a, it's especially hot as you deliver it while the markets are crashing and crumbling all around us and yet NFTs holding, <laughs> holding steady. So um, they, <laughs> they uh, continue to drive culture and I will, uh, I will send you to our friend Reese Witherspoon, who recently penned some, uh, I think a Twitter thread on, on uh, profile pictures and, and digital identity. Check, check, check that one out. Uh, along all, right, with- <laughs> all right, Reese. I will say, um, uh, Another celebrity, Cat uh, Dennings, uh, recently obtained a crypto coven, which I think are like the only or one of the only cool avatar projects. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, shout out, shout out to mainstream adoption. There you go. Broke girl no longer with a uh, yeah. with a, a, <laughs> a nice nice uh, profile picture project. Okay, life is life is a movie. You're a legal consultant, or and or script doctor for a movie being made in 2022. <laughs> uh, it's right in your wheelhouse. What is the plot of this movie that they had uh, Shahab uh, come uh, come consult on? Um, it is one thousand percent a heist movie using uh, anonymous identities. So the actual participants okay. in the heist do not know who they are. It is it is a, it is a crypto based heist with all with all decentralized um, identity participants. Hey, using their um, using their PFPs. Wow, heist DAO. Um, I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And one of them, um, you know, one of them can be a federal agent, but uh, really has difficulty stopping this thing from happening that they know is happening because it's also decentralized. Yeah. Um, and they, know, don't know, they don't know who they're, who they're dealing with. The blockchain is immutable, but uh, he, can't, he can't pull on the right strings uh, yeah. to, to, to stop the crime. I really like Heist DAO. Um, it really feels like it, it could happen. Maybe there's some... Uh, Mr. Robot uh, aspects to this. Um, I like it. I think. I think. Yeah. I think we can work on that. They might name it something else, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, repudiation of my heist DAO uh, name for it, but uh, uh, we can <laughs> we can work on that. Well, uh, amazing stuff, Shahab. Thank you for joining the If Then podcast. Fantastic having you on. I think that your kind of journey through these new and emerging fields has uh, been extremely interesting to track. You know, frankly, like, as you know, I I have gone into working in cryptocurrency myself. And while I do feel fairly early, I always have to remember that you did that six plus years ago. So there's, there's always more frontier to be had out there. As you build out your practice at scale, I think we'll definitely be interested in hearing more and in, in, in hearing how that goes. And uh, 
where can people find you if they like to seek your legal advice? Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I would emphasize that it is still very early in the space. Like you said, there's plenty of frontier to cover. And uh, for those of you who need help exploring that frontier, I, I am at Scale LLP. I'm advising you know, on, on crypto and, and, and privacy related issues and fintech, fintech kind of generally. Asgar at scalefirm.com if you want to shoot me an email. I mean, you can find me online and on Twitter at uh, the Shazgar. So uh, yeah, that's it. Amazing. Not with a uh, profile picture avatar on Twitter, um, most likely. Nope. Um, no, it's just sadly, it's just me. <laughs> can you believe it? Disappointing in 2022. But what was not <laughs> disappointing was this podcast. Thank you, Shahab, for joining. Thank you all out there for listening. This has been the If Then podcast. If you are interested in joining the, the if then community or partnering with the if then community you can reach me at david at if then.vc otherwise always be aping i just made that up but uh <laughs> please don't yeah <laughs> we'll see if that stays in but uh we'll see you guys uh we'll see you guys next episode